Welcome to the Soulful CXO, where we discuss leadership principles, core values, health, wellness, and resiliency. I'm Dr. Rebecca Wynn, the founder and the host of the show. Do you have a topic or guest you would like to be featured on the show? Would you like to be a sponsor? Please reach out to me on LinkedIn or email me at Rebecca at SoulfulCXO.com. Please go to our partner, Cybersecurity Tribe, for weekly show recaps and other resources. Listen and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Now sit back and enjoy the show. Welcome to the Soulful CXO. I am your host, Dr. Rebecca Wynn, and we are so pleased to have with us today, Terry Teresa Greppenstein. She is the Global Chief Auditor Technology for City, where she's responsible for leading audits covering infrastructure, cybersecurity, business continuity, crisis management, and technology across all their platforms globally. The prior positions included Managing Director of Deloitte's Risk and Financial Advisory Practice, and where I first met her, she served as eight years as appointed Inspector General for the U.S. House of Representatives. She served the industry through many roles. Some of her leadership roles include ASACA's Global Chair and is a member of the AICPA Board of Directors. Some of her many, many, many awards includes the 2021 Security Magazine Top Security Professionals, 2019 Institute of Auditors, it's one of the top 10 audit thought leaders of the decade, she was inducted into their Hall of Distinguished Audit Practitioners, great honor, FedScoop's Golden um, Gov Federal Executive of the Year, and that's just to name just a few. Besides being a certified public accountant, she is a CISSP. She is a certified internal auditor. She is a certified information systems security auditor, systems auditor, CISA, and she's got her CRISC, like myself and Certified in Governance of Enterprise IT. So she's got a, the whole gamut of CPA to technology certifications. <laughs> Terry, it's great to see you again. Welcome to the show. Great to see you as well. And thank you for asking me to be on. Now, you know, Terry, you know, one of the things is you're an anomaly a little bit. You know, you're a CPA who then crossed over in technology. And a lot of times CPAs are like, I don't want anything to do with technology. How did that even come that you found yourself kind of like straddling that fence and coming back and forth into technology and CPA and being a great auditor on both sides. Yeah, definitely. So it's actually a funny story. So um, at the time when I made that uh, leap, I was at the U.S. House of Representatives and Inspector General's office, and I was uh, probably like a senior auditor level. And so there was this thing, and the youngsters are all cringe, like Y2K. There's this thing that they called Y2K. It also dates me. But um, Y2K at the time, we were all really afraid about it. And it was like, you know, what's going to happen? And are all the planes going to stop there or crash out of the air? Or our water treatment facilities stop working? And when I was working at the House, they also had concerns. At the time, I think it was Republican controlled. And so a lot of Democrats were, they were concerned. It's like, okay, if this is Republican controlled, is there a possibility that the one party can fix the system so that they benefit, but the other side doesn't get the white gate fixes? And it was like, can that even be possible? And so anyway, they put me in charge of this project to look at that. So it was very political looking. I was nonpartisan, but very political looking. Are people being treated fairly? But as I got into it, at the time I was a CPA and more of a financial statement type of person. But when I thought about how cool is, you know, it's risky, but how cool is that, that this software bug could potentially bring down society as we know it? And so it really just thought, I got to do this. And so honestly, that was the hard shift when I went over to the um, IT side of the house and I, the, I picked up the CISA certification and I just sort of immersed myself from there and just decided that was the new me. 
Yeah, I think I, I read one of your stories or something like that. I said like one of your your top projects, first projects was looking at Active Directory. Oh, yeah, that. I, I, yeah. yeah, how was that? Because, you know, a lot of times I talk to people, like people think we just float on water and we never have like scary moments in our own lives where we just have to figure it out. What was that all about? Yeah, so for Active Directory, for those of you who were not around you know, in the profession before Active Directory, the precursor to that was, was Windows NT. And so at the time, again, I was still at the House of Reps. And how that worked was every single committee and office would run their own NT platform. So they had servers sitting all over the place. And there's a lot of risk with that because you have people varying levels of technical you know, capabilities, managing these things. And the other thing is you have all this disparate stuff all trying to connect into one uniform platform, right? One uniform network, rather. And so one of the concerns, again, because it was a political environment, it's like, well, if we have an active directory, what's going to happen with enterprise administrators? They could technically go in and hop across the different member offices and committees. And so what do we do about that? And so even though I was, I think at the time I was probably like an audit, IT audit team leader, or maybe auditor in charge or something, uh, but for the inspector general's office. Now at that time, I had to get up, usually auditors are just kind of looking at the controls, but I had to get up in front of all these committees, different house committees and talk about why did I feel comfortable that there wouldn't be any political shenanigans with people crossing across the different parts of the active directory? And so it was high stress because there was a lot rolling on that. And so I had to quickly get up to speed on active directory. And that was my first really big, hardcore project and understanding, you know, the forest and what does that mean? And, you know, what if you had multiple forests and what's the complexity there? And do we want to divide it into a Republican forest and a Democrat forest? Or do you want to have one big forest and, and all that? And so whether I liked it or not, it was painful learning it because it was like definitely my first like jump into the deep end. But that's been sort of the, I think some of the most painful and difficult life experiences you have end up being the best ones long-term. So if, if somebody who's watching this is living through one right now, when you get through it, it's either going to be a funny story <laughs> or it's going to be one that's sort of like ground changing. You know, it's like earth, whatever, moving for you because it's going to give you the foundation for so many other things that you can then build, you know, build upon. How do you go about tackling those hard situations? I mean, some people like I first go and I, I tell you, it's, it's sometimes being in the car and being able to scream, sometimes it's my best outlet to actually allow me to, to think clearly how do you go by when you're in those high stressful situations? You got to get it done, right? We're, we come from government, right? Mission first, got to do it. What do you do as an individual to, you know, get yourself centered to actually start taking those proactive steps to move forward? Because, you know, when you're fear, you freeze. How do you right. personally deal with that? So it's the same thing where it's in your personal life or in your professional life. I say the same thing to my kids. So I have a son who's getting ready to go to college and I have a daughter who's a senior in college who's getting ready to go into like the real world. And so both of them are stressed out you know, because it's like big life change. And what if they make a mistake? And what if they don't know this? or they, what, What's going to happen? All these things. So as an adult, you still have those emotions and feelings. Anytime you embark into something new, it's like, Oh, am I going to be okay with this? Do I know how to do this? Or it could be some massive project. Maybe your personal right? Like if you are selling your house or you're getting ready to retire or you're changing careers, you're changing, whatever it is. If you look at the totality of something like that, it can be crushingly overwhelming. 
where you become like stunned into inaction, where you want to go and just kind of like make your brain separate it from it. <laughs> you know, so you would just like block it out. And that's like, I think some of the root cause of procrastination, we're putting it off because we don't want to do it or we're afraid of it. And so what I would say is just do the next right thing, whatever that is, instead of looking at the totality of some big mountain you got to climb, what's my next right step? What is the next thing I need to do to get on my path forward? And so that way, instead of thinking, I got to learn this whole big thing, or I got to do this whole massive thing. And what happens if this goes wrong? You can't control what you can't control. You only can control your reaction to it and getting through the next thing. So take an increment. There was a guy I, I met early on in my career, and I'm sure this is a saying, but he used to say, how do you eat an elephant? My answer is, I don't want to eat an elephant, but you, know, <laughs> you need an elephant one bite at a time. So it's that thing too. So instead of worrying about the big mess, I think a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, and it'll get you there. <laughs> no, I agree. I tell people to start somewhere. I would never eat an elephant. I'm a vegan, but, um, <laughs> but I tell people, you got to start somewhere. And, you know, if it's the easiest thing that gets you that momentum, didn't, didn't do that. When you even did the House of Representatives, and obviously you had like a 25-year career or so in the, in the government, you know, like you said, about every two years, you would have new staff that has to come in or, or new people you had to deal with. And then you were Deloitte, you know, for a few years. And now you were sitting for a few years, you know, and you've still been able to be a transformer and to get people on the same page. And I would tell you, it's tough to go ahead and get buy-in and to go ahead and get people on the same page, but you've been doing it successfully and people forget it that you've had to do it successfully like every two years. What's your golden gems on that? How, how do you do that? Because it's tough for most of us. Well, I think it starts off with, so it's your point with, with working at the house, you know, every two years they had an election cycle. So every two years, I would have a new batch of people coming in you know, at the staff level or at the leadership level. And so they don't know me and I'm just this new face and I could potentially pose a risk. Same thing with my, you know, in my current job at City, I'm, I'm the auditor, right? So I'm the chief, I'm the global chief auditor for all of technology. And so as I'm meeting people, I'm a new face. They don't know who I am. And same thing at Deloitte, I'd go into clients and, you know, and recommend they do this, this or that. Again, they don't know me. So I think what it all comes down to is you can be the smartest person in the room, but if you don't have interpersonal skills and the ability to make relationships, it's almost a waste. You have to be able to make those relationships and you have to prioritize those because if you're a new face coming in, who are you? Like, why am I going to listen to you? You could have some agenda to you know, take me down or some like weird agenda to build, you know, you've lived your career on the bodies or the carcasses of others. They don't know. And so I think what you do is you invest that time in the front end as to why a person should trust you. And the reason why they trust you is through consistency and doing what you say and saying what you do, right? So if I'm going to come in and do something and behind the scenes, I'm like actually doing this and that, that's not trustworthy behaviors. You got to actually follow through with what you say. And if you find like from an audit perspective, one of the classic things that people are afraid of is I'm going to come in and I'm going to look, whatever it is, I'm going to go minutiae, little tiny little things, and then try to try to, you know, sink your battleship over sort of silliness or do it in a way that's not transparent. I absolutely am transparent. So I let them know exactly what I'm going to do. And I let them know way in advance. Hey, I'm going to come in. I'm going to look at the stuff. I think probably this might be the areas you might want to look at. 
if they fix it before I get in, hey, great, <laughs> you know, something's fixed. <laughs> you know, so a lot of auditors make the mistake that they think that they're being paid by the problem or something. So to me, we have to look at how is our organization safer and better? And that really should be the outcome. It's like, let's make this place better together. And it's one thing to say it, but you got to actually do it and people have to see it. And so eventually what happens is, is people, you get a reputation for that. People feel like, hey, I really am coming to the table because I want this place to be better. And you're part of this place. I'm part of this place. Let's work on it together. You know, one of the challenges that when I speak to other CISOs out there that we're running into, especially when we did go ahead and go COVID, a lot of people did lighter touch on what they should be doing for better security hygiene, privacy hygiene, compliance hygiene, because let's face it, they're trying to keep the doors open, data flowing so they can you know, they can still even have a business. And now they're kind of chasing their tails because you're like, holy crap, Batman, my, my typical saying, there's a lot of things that aren't stirred up. And, and then obviously we're taking a lot of personal risk as well because you don't want those to get breached. How do you usually mentor, you know, people like myself and we're like, you know, these people really aren't exactly where they should be maybe on PCI or HIPAA or things along those lines and balance your integrity as an individual in the profession at the same time, what do you usually mentor and tell people how we manage that in today's world? Yeah. So for me with COVID, you know, so obviously we all experienced that as well. And, and being my team is global. So it's like different parts of the world were getting hit at different times with diff, you know, varying degrees of severity. And so totally understand the reaction to want to move what you're looking at or maybe go a little light to it, I think is how you described it. For me, though, I work in a highly regulated environment. Going light is not an option. (laughs) So I had to, you know, I still had to do what I had to do. But what I could do is, is I took a step back and looked at my audit portfolio and and thought, okay, I know that because one of the things I audit is crisis management. Well, guess what the crisis management folks were doing in you know March of 2020 and you know the first quarter of 20. They're hardcore living the crisis. They're living that crisis. And for me to go in and audit their crisis management governance process right as they're literally in a worldwide crisis, probably not a smart thing. I don't see that as going light though. I see that as looking at the situation and saying. Is doing my audit right now adding risk or is it going to help reduce risk? And doing it right then would have added risk. Now I had to go through and justify what I what my rationale was, and I couldn't put it off into perpetuity. But looking at it and saying, what's reasonable? How can I move this so that way I'm not adding risk, but I'm still doing my job? And so the other thing I would say is, is that as an auditor and those and even security professionals, we all get pressured at some point by somebody saying, you guys, like, you want me to do all the, like, if you're a security person, you really want me to do this extra security thing. And do you understand how I got to get my job done and you security people are such a risk to me or auditors like coming in and auditing this. It's like, I have all these really important things to do. If you come and audit this, you're going to ruin the world. I mean, and the thing is, it's like, and the first reaction is, it's like, I don't want to be the person who ruins the world. <laughs> you know, I don't want to be that person. I want to be liked. I want people to like me. But at the end of the day, it's like our job is not necessarily to be liked. We got to do what's right. But you have to balance that. We don't want to be zealots. We don't want to cloak ourselves in this like thing where, oh, this is the right thing. No, sometimes gray. The world is about gray. But you have to look at it in terms of what's the, you got to do what's right. And 
you have to, at the end of the day, for me, I have to, I have a moral compass and I got to be able to live with myself and I got to make sure that I am doing the right thing. But also looking at the other person's perspective and saying, okay, is there anything that we can do that still keeps us all on the right path? But that is sort of, you know, acknowledges the very real business types of responsibilities that the other side has. And can we strike a balance? Can we move things a month? Can we scope this part out and maybe look at it in two months or, you know, a lot of it's about how you scope things and the timing of things. So that way you're not crushing your organization, uh, but you're still doing the right thing. Yeah. I know one of the things I needed to do is I really had to go to our top customers and saying, Hey, I, I got people like running for the buses or whatever to get out of the buildings globally. You know, there's an additional risk that you're going to have to accept for a short period of time. And this is how I'm doing the mindful the best I possibly can, but I got you know, you have a lot more, but I had 10,000 satellite offices overnight. I mean, it's really hard to kind of be a ghost in everybody's, you know, place to go ahead and see how they're doing. You know, when you have those conversations with executives, you know, people talk about, do you do a 15, you know, bullet point, um, do you 15 pages, do 175 pages, do you do one page <laughs> to go ahead and, and communicate? Have you found over time a way to communicate really what the, you know, the security risk posture is to the organization, even from an audit perspective, an effective way to actually communicate that effectively to the executives? Have you found any golden nuggets that way? Because we're all looking for them. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. I would say that with most really senior executives, bottom line up front, just tell me what the answer is. Like, I know when somebody's briefing me and it's like, they think they're going to tell me a mystery novel. And at the end, they're going to tell me the butler did it. It's like, just tell me right now, did the butler do it? We can go chase him down here together. But a lot of times they want to tell you security people and auditors are very similar. They want to show you all the great work they did. So they want to show you 10,000 pages, bullets and sub bullets and appendices and supporting spreadsheets and you know, whatever. And it's like, and because that's what's meaningful to them. They want to show you that they did the work and that's really data driven, which I respect because that's, we want people in those roles who are driven by data and who have done the work and stuff, but you got to be able to summarize it. So that way you're telling your state, your stakeholder, your very senior person that this is what they got to worry about. And this is either how we're fixing it or how I need their help. You know, what's their decision? What's their role in this? And if they want, there are a lot of senior stakeholders who want to drill into the detail. And so if you have that in your back pocket and say, okay, let's go through it. And so that way you show that you did the work, but not all, because a lot of times you get these really senior executives and they only have 15 minutes because it's like they're dealing with you and a thousand other, you know, big problems and they can chunk off this amount of time. So I would say know who your stakeholder is because a lot of us will know it's like this person loves details. This person maybe wants a summary, but always regardless if they're detail or summary person, always start off at the bottom line up front and what you need from them. And when you start a brand new company and you go in there, I know everyone's like, what are you going to do your first 90 days? One of the things I think is really challenging is, is one, trying to find out what that true culture is. And you've had two quick cultures here in the last you know, several years. What do you normally do as an individual to go ahead and try to figure out exactly what the culture is? Who are the key people is? What's the tone that they like to be spoken to? You know, what's the best briefing style? What kind of things can you recommend people go ahead and look at even when they get there or who they should be talking to in the organization to figure that out? So one of the things I would say is when you change an organization, I think I'll start with the biggest mistake you can make, and then I'll go into how I think 
to navigate a new place. Biggest mistake is to come in and think you know all the answers and you want to change everything before you actually even know where the ladies' room is or, or the cafeteria. It's like, I don't even know where the cafeteria is, but I'm here and I'm going to fix everything. It's like, wait a minute, who are you? And so I would say, don't do that. Even if you think you've heard rumors or whatever during the recruiting, they said, this really needs to be fixed. Go on an open mind. In terms of how to kind of really get a sense of the lay of the land, the first thing that I've done is meet with all the people. So it's like in my current role, one of the things I did was, is that I met with the team, you know, because they're the people I'm going to be working that are going to be on my team. I met with my peers within audit, and then I met with the stakeholders and then I met with my boss. And so through each one of those, even though my peers may be auditing different areas or managing different departments, they're going to give me a piece of the puzzle as to how the overall organization works. And meeting with stakeholders, so if you work in a pretty big environment, you're going to be dealing with stakeholders in the first line and second line. And so your risk people, as well as the people interact on, like for me, it would have been the CISO function at the time, really kind of get a sense and not just one person, kind of get a sense across. So in the first, say, 30 days, it's really about just meeting all the humans and then setting up recurring meetings. And as you kind of meet them, you're getting a better sense of all their different views on what's going well, maybe what's not going so well. And you have to take into account the fact that people aren't necessarily going to be throwing their, you know, wearing their heart and their sleeve that with telling you everything that's bad, <laughs> it may be a little closer help depending on what their role is, but it's, you're taking that into account. And at the end of it, it's sort of, um, you're going to kind of almost do like my former role when I was in uh, professional services. One of the things I would do is was help new uh, chief audit executives and new CISOs in their role. And as they were doing, I would give them this exact coaching. So they would do all these interviews with people, meet all the people. And then we'd diagram it on the wall and say, okay, here's your org chart. After what's your impression, all these folks and stuff, do you think this one's going to be one that's going to really help you? And in terms of achieving the vision, do they feel like they have a solid sense? Of course, some on the fence and ones that you really need to kind of, you know, help them along the journey. And who are some of the ones that are net, detractors to the overall and kind of keep a watching eye on them and see what you need to do. Same thing with processes, map it out and say, okay, based on my 30 days, my first 30 days, what are some of the processes I think that probably might be problematic and ones that we might want to drill into a little bit deeper? What are some of the ones that are key that I really need to learn better uh, before I start monkeying around with them? And then you go into sort of technologies. What are some of the things I need to do from a tech perspective and to really kind of make sure we're leveraging these things? And do I have the appropriate tools for my team to be successful? So it's like humans first and then be a little, be very methodical and systematic about really kind of plotting down your observations. Now, those are great points. Thank you for that. You know, with that, we said high pressure, a lot of things to analysis, everything else. How do you recommend people really balance burnout? Because that's one thing is it's easy then when you do start new jobs where you end up like you're pulling in 60, 70, 80, 100 hours and it seems like you're going 24 seven. And the next thing you know that, you know, you're beyond burned out and then you got problems. How do you recommend people handle that? And how do you recommend as a leader to watch out for that with their key people? Because you never want to lose key people because you didn't pay attention that they were burning out. Right. No, I think that's a great question. Uh, Thank you, Rebecca. So from my personal experience, I think there is a time that you need to probably double down and understand that when you're first getting into a place, it's probably not a 40 hour week. I don't think it's ever a 40 hour week, 
job if you're at a certain level in a company. But when you first start somewhere, absolutely not a 40-hour week job. I think when I, when I started my uh, current role, I think the only time I wasn't working was when I was actively asleep you know, initially. But that's more about me than it is about the what was being demanded of me. But it was more about me. I needed to read everything. I wanted to make sure I understood everything because I didn't want to change stuff unless I really understood what it was, what the current situation was. So, but that should be a, that should be like sort of a defined period of time, right? But then after that, you need to kind of start setting boundaries. So, you know, what are those boundaries? Because if you are all just living work and your kids don't know who you are, your partner doesn't know who you are, it's like, well, what am I doing this for? And so I think that it's okay to, you know, double down and to really invest yourself in, in work in these kind of key, you know, periods of time where you're having to, you know, learn a new thing or build a new process or build a new team. But after that, you kind of got to set those boundaries. And one of the things I saw during COVID, I think collectively, in the very beginning of COVID, collectively, none of us had boundaries. Like it's like when we would, we all started, I know for me, because I have a lot of teams in Asia, I have, you know, Asia Pacific teams, I have European, Middle East, Africa, as well as North America. And so my days, it was getting weird where my meetings were starting at like 6 a.m. <laughs> it's like, because people were like, well, we know you're home. <laughs> you're not, you're, you're home. You know? <laughs> and it's like, we weren't going anywhere. And then the other thing was that a lot of us weren't uh, taking vacation days because it's like, well, where am I going to go? And I remember I took a vacation day. It was you know right when the pandemic was beginning because my son just hit his 16th birthday and he got his driver's permit. And I felt a little guilty. I'm like, I wanted to take him out driving. So, you know, just driving around the neighborhoods, COVID safe, because just him and me in the car and we're driving with his little scary permit. And I'm afraid he's going to hit park cars and stuff. But the thing is, I almost felt weirdly guilty about it. Like I had to explain myself, like on my out of office, it's like, I'm going to be in a car you know, with my kid, you know, driving because he needs to learn how to drive. But in the same token, like, Pre-COVID, I would have never felt like I had to tell somebody what I was doing on my day off. And so I think with COVID, it took away a little bit of our privacy and our ability to disconnect. But for our team, and I know our CEO, where I'm at now, made it very clear. It's like, we need to make sure we're, we're striking those balances with work and life and that we need to make sure people have enough time to decompress and have lives and and all that. And definitely we massive culture shift where we do have boundaries and it's okay to be off. And I would say for those who are still struggling with that, change starts with you, right? Where it's, um, you know, I would make it a, you know, accusatory or negative kind of tone to it, but just have that conversation. It's like, what can we do to make sure that we don't burn people out and that people feel like they can have a life. And I know during COVID, another thing was mental health, you know, having some folks, I know I had a couple of folks on my team where you know they're dealing with little little kids that couldn't go to daycare or school and they're managing little little kids or even school age kids and they're having to get them launched in remote learning and having to come back to their work and look presentable and but they're frazzled and stuff. And just if you see that on your team, it's like they're a human being and just like talk to them and and make sure that they're okay because if if they're feeling isolated and alone, it's like they're not going to bring their best, right? But as a human, you should care about that. And, you know, just, I would just say, make sure that you're on the lookout for that and helping each other. 
No, thank you. And thank you for reminding us the humings. I tell people, you know, you can lose good people just because you have a caring heart first and see what's going on. You know, our times run short. Terry, how do people find out more about you, follow you, maybe get to you if they need to speak events and how do they learn, learn more about city? Yeah, definitely. So in terms of city, we are hiring. <laughs> so definitely, you know, check that out. I know that my team, we're definitely, we're growing. When I started my role as a global chief auditor for technology, we were at like 195 right now, up to over 300. And so it's like, we're growing, 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 apply, apply, apply. <laughs> in terms of reaching out to me, LinkedIn, Send me a note on LinkedIn. And I really do. I don't necessarily look at it real time, but if somebody, I, I try to go through all the messages and stuff, me personally. And so send me something on LinkedIn if you want to reach out and you know, we'll try to connect. Terry, thank you for being on the show. You are a soulful CXO. Thank you very much.